Good morning, RP. How are we doing? Good morning, good morning. Um, my name is Phil Adams. I serve here as the pastor of Park Rogers Park. Um, joy to be with you this morning. Joy to serve uh, in this role, in this neighborhood, in this city. Um, I love this neighborhood. Who, who loves Chicago? We love Chicago. Even, even, amen, a few claps, even on a rainy, rainy day. Thank you guys as well for coming out this morning because, um, wow, it, was, uh, it is wild out there this morning. Um, as you know, we are working through, some of you might know, we're working through a series in the, uh, we're working through great stories in the Old Testament of the Bible. If you were with us last week, we'll know that we did Esther part one. Um, if you didn't get a chance to hear that already, you can find that online. Um, but even if you did, you're here last week or you're here, um, uh, let me just give a, a recap for all of us of what we looked at last week um, and this incredible story um, in the Bible. Uh, the opening section of the book of Esther, it's, it's, it's about a storm uh, that's, that's brewing. In fact, much of the story um, of Esther through the book of Esther is this kind of holding on to tension and holding on to uncertainty. Um, around the year 500 BC, 500 years before Jesus was born in the Persian Empire, there, there was a reigning king. The reigning king was called King Xerxes, or, or King Azuzurus um, in the Hebrew, um, and he had a high official. This high official was a man called Haman, and what Haman does and sets into motion is one of the kind of driving forces throughout the story of Esther in the book, this book of the Bible. He, Haman has had his ego uh, deeply offended by, by an older Jewish man whose name was Mordecai, uh, because when, when Haman would go for a walk or, or, or ride through the city on his horse, um, it would have been customary for people in the city to bow down or bow their heads before him. And there is this, this, this man Mordecai then, this Jewish man, and he, he refuses to bow his head. He, he stands tall. He keeps his chin up in the air. And this deeply bothered Haman to such a degree that he got the king to write a decree that all of Mordecai's people, all within the Persian Empire, on one single day they would all be, be killed. And so the story of Esther is the story of looming genocide. That is the, the storm that is brewing in the book of Esther. The parallel to this storm, you'll remember last week, Esther chapter 1 opens up with a scandal. King Xerxes' queen has been deposed due to her defiance in refusing the king, and so this king, King Xerxes, goes and search for a new queen. And through a very questionable means of spending many nights with many beautiful women, he brought to him from throughout his kingdom, the king ends up choosing a young Jewish girl as his next queen who just happens to be the younger cousin of Mordecai, the man that Haman hates. So where we left off last week was with Mordecai, after weeping and mourning the destruction and the coming destruction of his people, he goes and he pleads with Esther, this newly appointed queen, to act. Do something. Esther, say something. You are now the queen. You can do this. And the cliffhanger last week was due to the fact that anyone who enters in to see the king without first being called is at risk of immediate death. But Esther, recognizing her responsibility that she has been placed in the palace for such a time as this, she goes anyway. And that's where we left off with, with, with Esther defiantly walking through the corridors of the palace on her way to the king. And this all brought us to reflect last week on the idea of our placements or, or, or the positions in which we have been placed. We each have been placed in a particular city, 
in a particular home, in a particular neighborhood, with particular neighbors and particular relationships. We each have been placed in particular families. We each have been positioned with different jobs, different careers, different responsibilities. And Esther found, found courage and a sense of responsibility in the realization that despite the circumstances that she had been dealt, she still had been positioned exactly where she needed to be. And so the book of Esther calls us to recognize the hand of God's sovereignty over our lives as a reminder that in Christ, God redeems everything about our past, everything about our present, everything about who we are for our good and for our future and for the sake of our placement. It's incredible. And this, week's, this week, God's sovereignty continues to take center stage once again. But if you were to pick up the book of Esther and you were just to read it from cover to cover, you would not be the first person to ask, why is this book even in the Bible? It's a great story, but how can God be center stage of a book in which he is never mentioned? Not once is God named, God's name mentioned in the book of Esther. And more than that, the book of Esther is the story of the forming of what, what becomes a national holiday in Israel. And the name of the holiday is the Feast of Purim. And the word Purim means to cast lots, to roll the dice. The Hebrew word Purim speaks to moments in life that feel random. Moments in life that feel undetermined, entirely dependent on the luck of the draw. Moments that are nothing more than how the cookie crumbles. The circumstances of our lives that seem to be without any apparent causal connection. How did I get here? How did, how did, how did, I, how did I end up here? How did, how did, how did I get, get so lost? My, my life is so messed up, it defies logic. Church, maybe what you are dealing with right now makes no sense. Maybe what, with what you're dealing with in your life right now, it makes no logical sense. The stars have all but unaligned and you don't get it. And so how can a book of the Bible where God is entirely hidden and never mentioned about a feast named after the best of luck ultimately be about God and his sovereignty? That's our question for today. So let's read, let's read our passage. Ask Esther chapter 6. We're going to read the whole chapter. Esther chapter 6. And it reads like this. On that night, the king could not sleep. And he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found written how Mordecai had told Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Azuzurus. And the king said, what honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? The king's young men who attended him said, nothing has been done for him. And the king said, who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. And the king's young man told him, Haman is there standing in the court. And the king said, let him come in. So Haman came in and the king said to him, what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman said to himself, whom would, be the king, whom would the king delight to honor more than me? 
And Haman said to the king, For the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought which the king has worn, and the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set. And let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most, high, most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor, and let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then the king said to Haman, Hurry up. Take the robes and the horse, as you have said, and do so to Mordecai, the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing that you have mentioned. So Haman took the robes and the horse, and he dressed Mordecai and led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman hurried to his house, mourning and with his head covered. And Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened to him. Then his wise men and his wife Zerah said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will have not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. Let's pray. God, we come before you this morning, God, knowing that in your word, God, we find life. God, we know that your word uh, speaks with power. God, your word changes and transforms and fixes what's broken and reveals what's true. So God, would you do that today? God, God I pray, God, that we would uh, come with a sense of awe this morning. Even as we came out in the rain, God, we see what you can do. We see your power declared, God, in nature, in this world, God. So would you reveal yourself today in this room? God, I pray that if there's people here this morning and they don't know you, or they're searching for truth, or they're searching for meaning, or they're searching for hope, I pray that it's Jesus that they will see. I pray, God, that you will enter into their hearts and you will enter into their minds and you will reveal yourself today, I pray in your name. Amen. Chapter 6 of Esther begins on a night that the king could not sleep. <laughs> and why he couldn't sleep on this particular night, we don't know. Maybe he, he'd forgotten to drink decaf. Maybe he'd watched a scary movie. And so what does he do? Maybe this is when you, you will pick up your phone to scroll through some social media or get some emails done, or maybe you're like me, when you can't sleep, you just really want to wake somebody up to tell them you can't sleep, a kind of annoying person, but not the king. When he can't sleep, he, he, he likes to read, and he orders for a particular book to be brought to him in bed. Must be nice. And the book he orders is a book recording recent Persian history, the things that have happened recently under his reign. In verse 2, we see that he then just happens to come across the record of a very particular incident. He can't sleep, he likes to read, and he opens the book or a scroll to where, in verse 2 of chapter 6, it was found written how Mordecai had told the king about a man called Big Thana, great name, Big Thana, Big Thana and Teresh, who were two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands and kill the king. What the, the king reads here is key to the, the story this week. The king reads about a very recent incident, which is written in chapter 2 of Esther, when Mordecai, Esther's older cousin, just happens to be sitting at the king's gate when he overhears two men conspiring to kill the king. And this is after Esther's coronation, so Mordecai goes and tells Esther, and Esther warns the king on behalf of Mordecai. And because of Mordecai's loyalty to the king, the king is saved. So then now in chapter 6, the king can't sleep. He picks up a book and is reminded of this incident. 
And it, it just pops up into his head to ask what honor or what distinction has been bestowed to Mordecai for this, for this act of loyalty to the king. To which the servants surprisingly know the answer, and they say in verse 3, nothing's been done for Mordecai. Then for no apparent reason this given, the king shifts and, and he says, who's in the king's court? And just at this precise moment, Heman happens to have entered into the court with very different intentions for Mordecai. Heman comes to the court to get it arranged for the defiant and the disrespectful and the annoying Mordecai to be hanged on the gallows. But, but there is a collision here in the narrative in chapter 6. We have a scene where ill intent, where evil intent, comes face to face with good intent. The king is seeking to honor Mordecai for his loyalty and Haman is seeking to hang Mordecai for his defiance. And although they, they are standing face to face, the king and Haman, neither of them knows what the other's intent is. And we don't know what the outcome is going to, to be in this situation in chapter 6 between good intent and evil intent, but we have a suspicion. Is Mordecai going to, to be honored or is Mordecai going to be hanged? Let, let me explain why we have a suspicion that Mordecai is in fact going to be honored rather than going to be hanged. The first time Mordecai refused to bow before Haman, Haman was feeling strategic. He was feeling controlled that day. And he, he plays the long game by putting plans in place to king, kill not just Mordecai, but all of his people. The second time Mordecai refuses to buy, Haman is feeling not so strategic that day, but he's feeling more temperamental. He, he initially restrains himself, but then he talks to some of his friends and his wife, and he sets out to immediately get Mordecai hanged. And why Haman really loses it the second time Mordecai refuses to buy is that Mordecai has ruined Haman's good mood. So bear with me and let me see, why was, why was Haman in such a good mood on this particular day in chapter 5, verse 9? Well, remember the cliffhanger last week? Let's see what happened. In chapter 5, verse 1, when Esther gets the courage to go and speak to the king, if I perish, I perish, she puts on her royal robes, par dressing was a thing back then too, and she walks into the room where the king is, risking her life. He looks at her, she looks at him. And once again, hearkening back to the first time the king seen Esther when against all odds an unlikely orphan girl found favor in his sight and won the lottery of odds to be chosen as queen, once again in unlikely circumstances despite the breaking of rules and going in to see the king without being called, once again she finds favor in his sight. And rather than killing her for her behavior, he asks in verse 3, what is your request? In fact, you can have anything you want up to half of the empire. Whatever you need, Esther, it's yours. And we think this is, this is going to be the, the, the end of the story, the end of the book. The, this is going to be the resolution of the tension. Esther has got the chance to change the king's mind and, and stop the plan and tell him that she too is a Jew and he has signed a decree to kill his own queen. But she doesn't. Instead, in chapter 5, verse 4, she invites the king and evil human for a feast, and they, they, they get to it, and so now Esther is going to tell the king everything in front of Haman, but she doesn't. 
She invites them to another feast the next day. Come on, Esther. Is she nervous? Is she still working on what to say or how to say it? We, we don't really know. But him and he, he, he's walking on the clouds because the queen just keeps inviting him to feasts with just himself and the king and the queen, and he's in a good mood. Then his good mood turns into a bad mood when he bumps into Mordecai. Mordecai doesn't buy, and he's so enraged, he heads straight to the king's court to have Mordecai hanged, where his evil intent to have Mordecai hanged collides with the king's late night good intent to have Mordecai honored. And so why, as we read chapter 6, why do we have a suspicion that Mordecai is going to be honored rather than hanged? This is, this is really important because when Esther says, Gimon, and when the quiet and voiceless Esther puts on her royal robes and she walks through the corridors of power to push open the doors to the king's residence on her own accord to speak on behalf of her people, and when she is not killed, but rather she is welcomed and offered whatever it is that she wants, we know as we're reading the story and we sense the tide in the book of Esther is beginning to turn. The momentum in the book of Esther is beginning to shift Chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4, the momentum of the story has been going down and down and down and getting darker and darker and nothing seems to be going right. Chapter 4 opens with the Jewish people pleading and mourning for their lives, knowing that a day is coming when the whole kingdom is going to turn on them. But by the end of chapter 4, when Esther is welcomed before the king, something in the narrative feels to be shifting. You know, when you're, you know when you're watching a, a movie and you, you get a little twinkle in your eye or a little, little smirk in your face that you kind of can't help but hold in because you know what's happening before even the characters know? Do you know that feeling? There's, there's likely two scenes that are, that are playing out at once and each scene is unknown to the other. Maybe, maybe the couple are, are racing to, to find each other, unknown to each other. Maybe, maybe the, the war is over in one scene and the news is on its way in another scene, but the people that are still fighting, they don't know that the war is over. Maybe, maybe a, a father who's been looking for, for their, their child and a, a daughter who's been lost. Maybe we know that the father knows where to find her and he's on his way, but she does not know yet, but we know. And you, and you relax knowing you, you, you can just sit back and enjoy the unfolding, the coming together of the known and the unknown. And not only enjoy the outcome in and of itself, but the characters' faces when they realize for themselves what you already have the pleasure of knowing. That they're that they going to find each other. The, the relief and the joy that the battle is over, the little girl's face when she sees her dad. But isn't it true real life doesn't give us the same vantage point from which we can watch both the known and the unknown of our lives come together? There, there is a known future in how that problem that's affecting you so much in your life is going to turn out, but it's unknown to you. 
there, there is a known future whether you will meet someone and whether you will get married or whether you won't, but it's unknown to you. There is a known future whether you will have kids, but it's unknown to you. There is a known future in how that particular situation that is causing you so much stress and, stress and so much fear is going to turn out, but it's unknown to you. We can only see from one perspective in time. We are the characters with vision that is in, not above our stories. When it is us sitting outside the palace grieving like Mordecai, when it is us hearing rumors that somebody is plotting to hang us, when it is us waiting to hear good news and all we experience is delay after delay after delay. The tide has been going out for so, so long. Will it ever turn and come back in? For Esther and Mordecai and the Jewish people in Persia, it did. The tide has begun to turn, which begs the question, when? On what moment does the, does the story pivot? When are we sure? We get an inkling we got a twinkle in our eyes when Esther finds fever after entering to see the king without being called. But then we think there is going to be an immediate resolution, but the tension just holds. Esther calls for a feast and she says, nothing. Esther calls for another feast and she says, nothing. Why, why, why the lag? Why the delay after delay after delay? It is Esther's lag caused by her inviting the king and Haman to numerous feasts that draws our attention towards the central, pivotal shift in the book of Esther. And it's not when Esther finds favor before the king, but in chapter 6, when good intent triumphs over evil intent. When plans being put in place for good confront and overcome plans being put in place for evil. Esther's lag gets Haman in a really good mood, resulting in a really bad mood when Mordecai doesn't bow before him, which sends Haman to the king's court to set up the gallows to see Mordecai hanged just at the right moment, just after a night the king couldn't sleep and has picked up a book to read, ending with the king saying who is in the court and finding out that it's, it's Haman. And so the king asks Haman for advice on how to go about honoring Mordecai. He asks Haman in chapter 6, verse 6, what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman can't help but think, well, there's no doubt. Who else is this going to be but me? Who else could he be talking to? I I've just had dinner with the king and the queen. So Haman presumptively answers, let royal robes be brought that the king has worn and bring a horse that the king has ridden and a royal crown and let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most high officials. And we know what's happening here, don't we? Heman continues, you should also, you should get a, a noble official, dress the man in whom the king delights to honor and let them be led by, on a horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, thus it shall be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then in verse, 11, verse 10, the king says to Heman, absolutely, that's a great idea, Heman. Hurry, take the robes and the horse, and as you have said, and do this all for Mordecai. He says, leave out nothing that you've mentioned. Verse 11, so Heman takes the robes and the horse and he dresses Mordecai and he leads him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, thus shall it be done to the man in whom the king delights to honor. Verse 12, afterwards Heman hurries to his house mourning 
covering his head, and we begin to see the reversal that's taking place in the story of Esther. Haman, who has been riding through the streets on the king's horse, is now mourning and covering his head. And Mordecai, who was mourning and clothed in ashes and sackcloth, is now wearing royal robes, riding on the king's horse through the streets of the city. And so do you see that we intuitively, by the end of chapter 6, we already know how the story of Esther ends, even before it does. Esther still hasn't confronted the king, and Haman plans to destroy her people, but we know a resolution is coming because we know the tide has turned. Then in chapter 7, at the third feast, the king asks again what Esther wants, and she finally says, we have been sold, I am my people, to be destroyed and to be killed and annihilated. And the king immediately asks, who did this? And Esther points at Haman, a foe, an enemy, the wicked Haman. And then Haman ends up hanged on the very gallows built for Mordecai. And Mordecai is given the very ring that had been given to Haman to seal the decree with which a new decree is sealed, declaring the Jewish people survival and freedom. Esther, the orphan, has become Esther, the reigning queen. Mordecai, the mourning, has become Mordecai, the high official. Haman, the high official, has become Haman, the hanged. The tide has turned. There has been a reversal. Good intent has triumphed over evil intent. And finally, a story that begins with a feast, if you remember, of pride and ego, ends with a feast of joy and a feast of gladness. If you remember last week, the story of Esther started with the king holding a feast for 180 days, but the story ends in the final chapters, chapter 8 and chapter 9 and chapter 10, with another reversal with the Jewish people instigating their own annual feast. And for us then to to really know what the book of Esther has really been about, to, to know what the core idea of this book of the Bible has been, we looked at what the Jewish people called their feast to remember the story. And they call it the Feast of Purim. And we ask, why, why not the Feast of Esther? Or why not, the, why not the Feast of Mordecai? Or why not the Feast of Freedom? That sounds good. Why, why the word Purim? Which means to cast lots, to, 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 to roll the dice. The Hebrew word Purim speaks to moments in life that feel random and undetermined entirely dependent on the luck of the draw, moments that are nothing more than how the cookie crumbles. Rogers Park, they called the feast Purim as a reminder to themselves that the story of their survival was carried most clearly not on the backs of the characters that are mentioned, but rather their survival was carried and determined by the character who is never mentioned. Church, Purim celebrates not the roll of the dice, but that there is one who rules and reigns over what is random. Purim celebrates that there is one who is in command of the coincidences, one who determines the luck of the draw, one who gives meaning to our madness. The the family we have happened to be born into, the the exile that we seem to be remained in and can't get out of, the contests we happen to win, where we happen to sit and the plans we happen to overhear, what we happen to, when we happen to wake up and what we think about when we open a book. The days we happen to feel strategic and the days we happen to feel temperamental. Who we happen to bump into and the questions that we happen to be asked. The reward we have not yet received and when it will be that we do. 
Esther is a story that very well could be a movie. <laughs> but if we are to, to watch it rightly, we shouldn't only get a, a twinkle in our eyes simply knowing that the story, what the story means for Esther and what the story means for Mordecai. We should start to smile knowing what the story means for us. There is only one scene in our lives that we can see, the scene that we're in, not the scene that we're above. And yet when we give our lives to Christ, there is, is a scene that is known but unknown to us, without which we are maybe asking ourselves today, how, how, did, I, how did I get here? How, how did I get so lost? Is, is there anyone racing to find me? Is there any good news on its way to be shared with me that would explain this? Because if there isn't, my, my life is just madness without meaning. Church, what, we, what do we do when our stories are unfolding but we only know half the story? How do we hold the known and the unknown together? Can we? Burgess Park, listen to this verse in Colossians chapter 1, speaking of Jesus. It says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Friends, he holds together the scenes of your life that you see, and he holds together the scenes that you cannot see. Jesus has the vision to see your today and your tomorrow. He has the vision to see your next week and your next year. He sees your now and your not yet. He sees you're here and he sees you're there. He sees the cause behind every coincidence. He sees the logic behind a life deemed senseless and his sovereign hands in which he holds together. He holds everything, everything he holds, he can see. Let me close with this as we come to communion today. It was on the cross of Jesus Christ that we find the ultimate triumph of good intent over evil intent. When Jesus gave his life on the cross and when he rose from the dead, the tides of history began to turn. It was through the blood and the body of Jesus given to us that the tides of history, the tides of our lives began to turn, to turn. And by the power of the resurrection, a new world is on its way. And in some profound way, the kingdom of God is not only coming, but it's already here. And maybe you're here this morning having resided yourself to the, to the senselessness of your life. Having, having resided yourself maybe to the randomness of it all. And content to try and figure out is there joy in that. But maybe there is better news that has been found on its way to you today. Maybe there has been another scene all along. Maybe someone has been looking for you all along. Church, Jesus Christ already knows you. Jesus Christ loves you. Jesus Christ died for you. And in him, your life is being held together by his plans for you. Plans for good, plans for forgiveness, plans of hope, 
and plans that will one day end with a new beginning around a feast, a feast of gladness and a feast of joy. Let's pray. God, we recognize, God, that we often are very blind. That we wake up and we have no idea how the day is going to end or the week or the month or the year. We can be filled with fear and concern and anxiety. And God, we come before you and we fix our eyes on Jesus, knowing that you hold our unknown. And in your eyes, it's known. And your heart for us is good. Your, your affection for us is love. God, I pray today, God, that we will be reminded of that as we come up and we take the, the cup and we take the bread. May we see that you have proven your love for us. That there is no greater love than when we look to the cross. And if you would do that for us, that there is nothing that you would not do for your people. So God, whatever concerns that are in this room, whether it's about money, whether it's about careers, whether it's about sickness or illness, I pray that we will fix our eyes on Jesus. In him there is eternal life. In him there is eternal hope that doesn't just start in the future, but starts today. Because you know our tomorrow, you know our next week, you know our next year. We put our lives into your hands. In Jesus' name, amen. Mm -hmm.